turn in our Bibles together to the book of Hebrews. If you're not used to using a Bible, the book of Hebrews is a book in the New Testament. The Bible is comprised of an old covenant and a new covenant, and there's two testaments, old and New Testaments that correspond to those covenants that God has made. We're going to be on page 1004 in these black Bibles that are around you. And if I refer to a chapter number, those are those big numbers in the Bible, and then the verse numbers are the smaller little numbers. So chapter 6, verse 10 is what I'll be pointing us to first in Hebrews. So I'm pretty amped up. I'm excited about this sermon, guys. I just can't tell you. This is one of those times that you you just don't get that many opportunities to preach on Melchizedek. So I'm just pretty excited. And you all have likely heard little to no teaching or sermons on Melchizedek. So I just feel like, man, what an opportunity this morning that is here before us. Melchizedek. Friends, that's not true at all. I really don't want to preach on Melchizedek because Melchizedek is not the main person that we should be thinking about this morning. It's Jesus Christ. So just as a a forewarning or kind of before we dive into what we're about to get to, if you get lost up in the details of an obscure Old Testament figure, Melchizedek, then you may have missed the whole point because we're not supposed to get lost in the details of Melchizedek. We're supposed to see Jesus Christ. And so that's my hope, my prayer, my aim for you is that even if there's maybe some confusing things said or some, some more harder arguments to follow and you might, like, what's going on here? Wait for the end. We're going we're gonna to not do a, a typical sermon outline that if you've been accustomed to listening to my teaching at least, where it's like, okay, a little introduction and then here's point one, two, three, then a little conclusion, kind of wrap things up. I'm actually going to try and make this a conversation. I'd like to ask some questions and then see kind of what you would be thinking, and then there'd be a little bit of a dialogue, and then work through this passage together to finally get to this one simple, glorious, amazing truth that Melchizedek is pointing to. So just as a forewarning, if you're like, oh, when's he getting to first point, and where's that, you know, just, just follow the conversation. We'll have hopefully an easier time following along this maybe complex, difficult passage of Scripture in this manner, Okay? So here is my little introduction. What do you think you need right now? You know, like when you're looking at your life and what you're currently going through right now, and you come to church this morning and you're thinking like, what do do I really need? What am I longing for? What am I desiring for myself? Do you think you need more comfort? Based on your actions in the last few weeks or months, It might seem that some of us are pursuing comfort, avoiding any discomfort as much as possible, and putting a big X to anything that would be in our path that would lead us to discomfort. Maybe you need more money. Anybody in here need a job or more money or a better job that pays more money? Sometimes that's a a burden, you know, that's on our minds and hearts. Married couples, the biggest reason for divorce statistically they say is disagreements about money often when it's tight and what we're going to spend it on if we just had more money that would solve all of our marriage problems in america right oh wait we're the richest nation in the history of mankind but yet we're divorcing still 
maybe it's not money, but what, what do you think you need? Do you need some sort of victory over something? Like you're just being defeated and pummeled and day after day and week after week. There's something in your life that's just, it's mastering you. I, I need victory over this. I need some sort of breakthrough. I mean, one easy way for you to find out what it is that you really want is to look at your prayer log. What have you been praying for? That will then be the window to look inside of your heart and see this is what you're truly longing and desiring for. What have you been praying for? What do you think you really need? As you open your ideas to what is it that I need and what I want, have you ever considered that maybe you don't know what you need? Have you ever just pondered the thought that maybe you don't know what's best for yourself? Friends, I find too often as I've gone through pastoral ministry that sometimes we think we need one thing, and this is what we're praying for, this is what we're longing for, but God's word has said, no, there's actually something better than that thing. I bring this up because I think this is one way to think about the book of Hebrews as a whole. As we look at the book of Hebrews, I wonder if sometimes that the writer who's writing to this group of Christians is saying to them, look, you don't need that. What you need is this. Because they're going through a difficult time. We know that there are felt needs in the life of this church and this congregation. We know that they're suffering persecution. We know that some of them have experienced pain and difficulty. And so if you were in that situation, I, I mean, let's just be honest for a second. What do you think you'd be praying for? God, stop the persecution. Give me comfort. Give me something that's easier to live life on. I, I don't like going this route and, like, take up my cross daily. I, how about just once a year, not every day? I wonder if some of them wanted their possessions back. Chapter 10 says in the book of Hebrews that they had their property plundered and stolen from them. They wanted their money back. How am I going to live? We don't know how much they took. What if some of them, they took everything? I need some material gain here. How am I going to live? How am I going to eat the next day? Maybe some of them wanted to fight back get them. Let's get our swords. Let's conquer. Let's be victorious over these enemies and stand up for God's justice. I mean, this is all speculative. We don't know, but what we do know is that what the writer of Hebrews gives to them is none of those things. He doesn't give them a game plan for how to fight their enemies off. He doesn't tell them to start praying that God would end the persecution. In fact, when we get to the end of the book in chapter 13, it's almost like he's calling them to more persecution. See Jesus outside the camp, go with him outside the camp where he suffered, bore the reproach of God. Go, do this. It means more suffering, more uncomfortability. He never tells them to go and try and get more money. All of these things aren't in his mind. So what is it that he tells them that they need? Chapter 2, he says, be furiously obsessed with the gospel. What you need is the gospel. Be furiously obsessed with it. Stop 
listening to other things. Listen to the words that have been delivered to you about this great salvation so you do not neglect this amazing prize for these lesser prizes. He says in chapter 3 that what they need is to hold on with courage and confidence to the hope that has been given to them in Jesus Christ. He tells them again in chapter 3 that they need to hold firm to the end. He tells them that they need to hold fast to their confession. Why? So that then when they have needs, they can bring those needs before the throne of grace and have God help them with those needs. He's more concerned about them holding fast to their confession and understanding who God is and what God has done for them than all of their material or maybe surface level needs. Not that those would be unimportant, but they're not ultimate. They're not the main hope that he's offering for them. Oh, we'll get you your money back. In chapter 10, he says specifically, you need what? You need endurance. That's what you need right now. In this trying, difficult circumstance, you need to persevere to the end, step by step and day by day. In chapter 12, he says, you need endurance like Jesus. Look at Jesus. Run your race like Jesus did to the end. We don't see anything that makes it seem like he needs to give them instructions about comfort or riches or victories over their enemies. Look at chapter 6, verse 11 and 12. Get a picture here of the flow of how his aim for what they need and what he thinks is best for them then flows into Melchizedek. So this is where we're going to start in terms of our dialogical conversation here. He says in chapter 6, verse 11, the same thing that I just said through all these other sections of Scripture, that what they need in verse 11 is we desire that each one of you would be earnest, passionate, Dedicated, diligent to have hope until the end. Persevere. You need endurance. Don't be sluggish, but instead be imitating those who had faith and patience to inherit the promises. He says, I want you to imitate those who have gone before you. What you need is faith and perseverance and patience that God has promised you great reward and blessing And even though you're not experiencing that blessing and reward right now, believe that it's coming, patiently endure. That's what they need. Patience to endure. In fact, be imitating. Notice that language. Imitate those in verse 12 who have done this. Like who? Who's done this? Who's who's waited for a long time to receive the blessings of God? We'll look down in chapter 6, verse 15. Like Abraham. Abraham patiently waited when God gave him the promise that he would have a great, big, large family, as many as the stars in the sky. And he had to wait decades for that promise to come true. Yeah, be like Abraham, who heard the promise of God and faithfully, patiently waited. How how are we going to wait like Abraham if we don't have a promise like Abraham. Abraham had a hope set out before him, and then you go on to say that he had an oath with that. It wasn't just a sure promise from God who never lies, but there was also an oath where God swore by his own self and kind of doubly assured that this would come true. 
We don't have that. How are we going to wait like Abraham if we don't have a promise like Abraham and an oath like Abraham? And he says what in verse 18 and 19? We have strong encouragement to hold fast because there is a hope set before even us, not just Abraham. This hope is sure. It is steadfast. It is an anchor to our soul, an anchor of hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. You do have a hope. Abraham was given a hope, and he had faith in the promise, and he persevered to the end. You, too, have a hope set before you, just like Abraham. And this hope is that you have access into the very presence of the Holy of Holies of God Almighty. That's a hope. Not just children and descendants, as many as the stars in the sky, but you can have access into the very throne room presence of the Holy Majesty of God. This is a good hope. But if you're listening and you're dialoguing and you're questioning this, you pause here and you say, how in the world do I get presence into the Holy of Holies? I can't go into the Holy of Holies. I've read my Bible. Every time someone gets even close into the presence of God, they get incinerated, they die, they fall on their face. Read your Old Testament and just see the stories again and again. The presence of God and the sinfulness of humanity cannot be in the same place together. How can we then have access to the holy of holies of all places? Friend, if if you're here this morning, just pause. If you don't understand what Christianity is about, it is about this fundamental problem. We as sinful disrespectful, dishonoring people who have rebelled against God cannot be with God. And so if there's going to be hope for the whole world and for your individual life, it is that God and humanity would be back together again like they originally were designed to be. The reason that there's chaos and evil and sin and all the problems you see on your television and in the world and the newspaper is because God and man is not together. They are not unified and in unison, and when they are, this is when peace and love and joy and harmony happen. So he's saying that there is a hope, and it's toward the end, and it's that God and man will be back together again. But how can that happen if we are sinners and we have no right to be in his holy presence? Answer, verse 19 and 20, chapter 6. That in the inner place behind the curtain, Jesus Christ has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever. We do have access to God's holy of holies behind the curtain, and that there can be a day when God and humanity comes back together again, and sin is done away with, and joy and peace and harmony is fulfilled. Hold on to that hope because of Jesus. This is the good news of the gospel that Christians for 2,000 years have been proclaiming. There is hope for you because of Jesus. He is the forerunner. This means he went ahead and he blazed a trail that you and I could not go on our own. That's, That's what we just observed. We can't go in the Holy of Holies like we are. 
So therefore, we need somebody to go in on our behalf and lead the way for us so that we can follow behind him. And they said, Jesus is that person who went through into the presence of God, and we can now follow behind him, and he's made an anchor in there so that way we will never get lost. We can always find our way up to where Jesus is. He blazed the trail, and he left a path, and it's anchored into the inner court of the Holy of Holies. That's how. That's how this can happen. So it's like Jesus then, as he says, he's our priest. He's our mediator. He's the one that goes before us into the Holy of Holies first before we do, because that's what priests would do. But again, I have to stop and ask a huge question. No, Jesus cannot be my priest. Jesus is from the line of Judah. That means that he's going to be a king, the messianic king. He can't be a priest. I've read my Bible. Come on, Hebrews author, whoever in the world you are. Get with it here. Know your Bible. Priests have to come from the line of Levi. They can't come from the line of Judah. Jesus is from the line of Judah. So Jesus can't be our high priest. Your whole argument falls apart. Doesn't work. Jesus can't be our forerunner priest. He can be our king, but we need another priest to go in the Holy of Holies before us, not Jesus. Do you feel the weight here, the tension here? Let me read to you just one quick quote from a scholar that hits this point. He says, it was a very big problem for the early church that Jesus came from the house of David. It was a problem because it meant that he was qualified to be the Messiah as the king of Israel, but this disqualified him from being the high priest who takes away the sins. This person should have been from the house of Levi, from a different tribe altogether. In fact, there's a story, if you know your Bibles well, in 1 Samuel chapter 13. Who's the first king ever appointed for Israel? His name was Saul. And Saul was waiting around to offer a sacrifice, and Samuel wasn't showing up. He said, I'll be there in seven days. Seven days didn't happen. Didn't show up. So seven days gone by, and there, eighth day, he's like, look, I'm getting impatient here, and I need to make a sacrifice so that way God will be on our side and we can defeat the Philistines. So instead of patiently waiting for Samuel, he decides, I'll just make a sacrifice myself. Hey, I'm the king. This does not go well for him. Samuel says, what have you done Saul said, well, when I saw that the men were being scattered and that you have not come at the set time that you said and the Philistines were assembling, I thought, now the Philistines are going to come down and destroy us at Gilgal. So I sought the Lord's favor and I felt compelled to offer a burnt offering. And Samuel says, you have done a foolish thing. You have not kept the command that the Lord your God gave you. And if you had, you would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom will not endure and the Lord has sought out a different man the one whom is after God's heart to rule his people. Do you realize that the reason why we're not talking about Jesus, the king of kings through the line of Saul, but instead the king of kings through David is because David was the one after God's own heart, but Saul was the one who disobeyed God and tried to be both king and priest at the same time. The whole kingdom fell out from underneath of him because he made that error. You are only king. You can't be king and priest. This is a big problem, especially if you're the writer of Hebrews and you're saying over and over again, take great comfort in the fact that Jesus can sympathize with you like a high priest. He has said that how many times already? Three, four, five at this point in the book? 
how can Jesus be our high priest? Answer. The end of verse 20. He is our high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And then that's when we all say, who is Melchizedek? What in the world is going on here with Melchizedek? Now, seriously though, if you did not have the book of Hebrews, most of us probably would have no clue about Melchizedek. He shows up for a few verses in Genesis chapter 14, and he has one little mention in Psalm 110, the psalm that Gina read for us earlier. But in the mind of the Hebrews writer, this not only solves this dilemma, but this is awesome. This Melchizedek guy, if we get what he's saying here, we will now see greater glory and beauty about Jesus than maybe you've ever seen before. That's why I'm amped this morning. Guys, come on. Melchizedek. If you get Melchizedek, then you will get Jesus even better than you have before. So who is Melchizedek? Let's not get confused and bogged down by the details, but let's read chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. Why would he say in the order of Melchizedek? Well, for Melchizedek was the king of Salem, and Salem means peace. It's actually the word shalom, S-L-M, shalom, has the same Hebrew root. So he's going to start with his name, and he's going to say he's the king of peace. He is the priest of the most high God. He met Abraham returning from a slaughter of the kings and blessed him, and to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. So, first, he goes to what appears to be a simple reading of Genesis chapter 14. Those short verses, you could read them later on your own time, about Melchizedek in Genesis 14 basically are summarized right here. There's a guy, he's the king of Salem, which could be Jerusalem, doesn't really matter, I don't think, but it could be significant if you're like, oh, that's a cool tie. Anyway, the first priest, the king of Jerusalem, priest. So he's a king, but he's also a priest of the Most High God. And it says that Abraham was out fighting in battle. He wins. He brings the plunder and the goods that he won from that battle, and he gives a tithe to Melchizedek. And then Melchizedek blesses him. Now, this is a big deal already. Because now we're seeing a small little sample that maybe, maybe Abraham isn't the most important person in the Old Testament. Because I ask any Old Testament, I mean, what is it? Jewish faith, Christian faith, Muslim faith, all of those say the faith of our religion begins with one great character, his name is Abraham. Tons of people say those kind of statements. But what if Abraham wasn't the greatest man in all of the Old Testament, like many people have concluded throughout the years? What if there's somebody greater? And what if this person points us to Jesus? Now, some people think that maybe Melchizedek, being this strange, obscure figure, is potentially like a pre-vision of Jesus. He's not actually a person, like king, historical figure. And some people think he might be an angel, and again, I think these are the details where we get bogged down and we miss the big point. The point is this. Look at verse 3. This king, who's also a priest, that's an important point, king-priest. But thirdly, or, or, or verse 3, 
He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. This is the key. That verse in verse 3 is the connection between Melchizedek and Jesus. And again, a lot of debates and discussions of what is this saying? Is this saying that he's eternal? So then maybe that's why he's an angel, because he never had a genealogy, he had no father or mother, and he lives forever. Well, that sounds angelic, sounds like an eternal being. So that's one possibility. Another possibility is that this man, Melchizedek, has a real mother and father, has a genealogy, and he did die, but what we don't have is any record of it in the book of Genesis, which is all about what? Genealogies and records. So here you have Hebrews writer maybe reading through Genesis, and he's getting like, all right, I get the genealogies. You all ever had those experiences? Okay, genealogies again, and here we go. But then we get this Melchizedek guy, no genealogy. What's happening here? And then we don't ever see him again. We don't get any mention of his death. So either A, he is an angelic eternal being. That's a possibility. And in fact, a lot of people believe that because during the time Hebrews was written, if you look at old documents from other traditions, they would have even said they think that Melchizedek was an angel. So there you go. Or he could have just been saying, look, we don't see any evidence of where he came from or where he goes to. So it's mysterious. It's strange. It doesn't fit with the rest of Genesis. And he, so he pulls from that and say, he's like, he's eternal. Doesn't matter which camp you fall into, okay? Was Melchizedek an angel or was he a real historical person? The point is that the writer of Hebrews is going to say, what he appears to us is, is a king priest that lasts forever. That's the point. So don't get caught up in the details. Realize that is his main point. And everything flows from there. Look at verse 4 and following. So see how great this man Melchizedek was to Abraham, the patriarch, who gave a tenth of the spoils. I just want to make a quick statement right here. This is, I think, one evidence to say that Melchizedek is, in fact, the greatest man in all of the Old Testament. Far superior to Moses, far superior to Abraham. He is so great. Look what even Abraham did. The patriarch gave him a tenth. Bowed down before this king. Abraham's not the greatest man in the whole Old Testament. Melchizedek is. Therefore, what? If you would like to know more about Jesus Christ, the potentially best person for you to get to know in the Old Testament is Melchizedek. Here is the greatest foreshadowing type in all of the Old Testament that then points to Jesus. Verse 5. Those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is from their brothers, the Israelites, brothers or sisters, though these are also descended from Abraham, but this man, Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Abraham, the patriarch, the one who had the promises. No, no, he blesses Melchizedek. Verse 7, it is beyond dispute then that the inferior is being blessed then by the superior. Who blessed? Melchizedek blessed. Therefore, Melchizedek is greater and Abraham is inferior. That's the point in verse 7. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, 
by one of whom it is testified, and this is where maybe he's talking about there's a lack of testifying in the Old Testament or that there is testifying in the day that he's writing this, that he continues to live forever. He's eternal. Or his, his appearance seems to be eternal. So in verse 9, one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, even though he wasn't even alive yet. And that's strange. It's like, how does Levi pay tithes when he's dead, or not, I mean, not dead, but not even alive yet? And he says, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him, being Abraham. So the point he's saying here is that Levi, who comes from the family of Abraham, his DNA is from Abraham. So it's like when Levi, because he's a part of Abraham's family, when Abraham gives that tenth, Levi is paying a tenth too to Melchizedek. Short summary, Melchizedek is greater than both Abraham and Levi. Therefore, we can make this point in chapter 6, verse 20. Jesus is the high priest forever, eternally, in the order not of Levi, but of Melchizedek. He can be both a priest and a king and not have to deal with all the issues of like, well, what about the line of Judah and the line of Levi? He can't do both. No, no, no. Melchizedek's greater than all of them, and he did both. Therefore, Jesus is like Melchizedek. Both priest and king. So then, what do we make of Levi? What do we make of all this talk about Levi and his sacrifices and his priests? All the things that were happening in the temple in the whole Old Testament. If they were going to be fulfilled through Melchizedek, then what was the deal with Levi? Look at how he answers that question in chapter 7, verse 11. Now, if perfection, and this is a, a difficult word to translate, and perfection might be the best that we've got, but you should think of wholeness, completion. It's the same word you saw earlier in chapter 5 and 6 where he talked about the difference between infants who are immature and adults who are mature. So fullness of maturity, fullness of completion, perfection, okay? Now, if perfection had been attainable through Levi and his priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Aaron and Levi are connected in the same family line. So it's saying, why would we need somebody from Melchizedek? Or why would we even need this line from Levi? And what he's telling us here is that perfection was not attainable. Completion of God's purposes could not have happened through Levi. It was simply like a picture. And that one day, that 2D flat picture would be made 3D in flesh. The sacrifices of the Levitical house was a foreshadowing picture for the people of Israel to see that there would be an ultimate final priest who would once and for all take care of the priesthood forever. Verses 12 and 13 and 14 explain the question that I was talking about earlier about how can they be from the same line. For when there is a change in the priesthood, then there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Well, if Jesus is going to be our priest, then we're going to need a whole new covenant, a whole new law. Oh, that's what we get. It's called the new covenant. Verse 13, for the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, that being Jesus. Jesus didn't belong to the tribe of Levi. He belonged to the tribe of Judah. 
And nobody can serve the altar unless they're from the tribe of Levi. Verse 14, for it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Anywhere in the Old Testament, you don't see anything about somebody being from the tribe of Judah being a priest. And that was what we were asking earlier. Verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of the legal requirement concerning the bodily descent, but he becomes the priest because of the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and its uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. Pause. See what he's saying so far when we ask that question? So what do we make of Levi? It was a foreshadowing picture that could never accomplish what it was meant to accomplish. But Jesus is the real thing that actually accomplishes what it was meant to. And in fact, the former picture was worthless, it was weak, it was useless, it was unable to. Now, when I say this, don't get so negative about the Old Testament. Because that would be very easy to do. Be like, see, the whole Old Testament was worthless. It was bad. Now, he's saying it was bad to accomplish the fullness of what God was trying to do. It couldn't do that. And if it was trying to do that, it's useless for that purpose. But it was useful for the purpose that God made it. So don't say more than what that verse is saying as you compare and contrast the Levi and Jesus' sacrificial priesthood. So what we need to realize here is that he is saying that the Levi priesthood is caught up in the Jesus priesthood, and the Jesus priesthood is forever and eternal. And it is not found because Jesus was born in a certain family. He is that priest because he lives forever, because he is eternal. In other words, he has an indestructible life, as it was read here. He rose again from the dead. Do you understand, friends, why we've been singing songs about the resurrection from the dead? It's not Easter Sunday, because the whole point of his argument hinges on whether or not Jesus rises from the dead and defeats death. This is what makes him a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, is that he lives forever and ever, and he has risen from the grave. So I want you to see now the rest of this chapter, chapter 7, how all of these questions start to come together. So this ongoing dialogue and questions back and forth, what about this, what about that? They all come together right here in verse 19 and following. See how he's using all of these things for this main argument. Verse 19. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Do you remember how this started? We have a hope set before us. What do they need more than anything else in the world? They need hope to persevere in faith in the promise. Well, we don't have a promise like Abraham. No, no, you do. You have a better hope. You have a hope to enter the Holy of Holies. How can we enter the Holy of Holies? Because of Jesus. Jesus can't enter the Holy of Holies. He's not a priest. He is a priest. He is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. He is a priest that lives there forever. So therefore, you don't have just any hope. You have a better hope, he says in verse 19. 
a better hope than even Abraham had. The fulfillment of Abraham's hope is found in Jesus. Therefore, you can draw near to God. You see how the connection between the hope of what Jesus has done as their priest leads to drawing near to God in his very near presence. Because there's an anchor. There's an anchor in the sanctuary of God, in the inner tabernacle. I don't know if you know this, but it was not a cross that's behind me that was the symbol of Christianity for hundreds of years. Did you know that? It's because the people who were Christians in the first few centuries realized that a cross was a sign not of hope, but of execution. Like just picture this for a second. I turn around, and there stands before me an electric chair. That's strange, isn't it? Like, you would probably walk in this building, first-time visitor, electric chair hanging back there. I'm leaving. Oh, here's a noose hanging from the back of the church. And we're all singing and celebrating. Look to the noose. That's not the way they talked in the first few centuries. The way they talked, and even you can see in the catacombs, not that the cross wasn't significant. I'm not pointing to that. I'm pointing that there were different images, different pictures wasn't just what the cross had accomplished, it was what the resurrection accomplished. So, if you go back, Google this. Early catacombs, symbols of early faith, first hundred years, whatever you want to search, and you'll see a picture of an anchor. And there's really only one mention of an anchor here in like all of the New Testament, right here. I just want you to start to grasp your mind for a second how big and solid and huge this was for Christians in the first centuries. An anchor that we can be near to God and draw near to him forever because Jesus is our high priest. It was huge. Look at verse 20, chapter 7. And it was not without an oath, for these who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this, this one, Jesus, was made a priest with an oath by the one whom has said, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Hey, remember when earlier in chapter 6 he says, hey, Abraham, he got a promise. And God doesn't lie. But because we're weak and we sometimes don't trust God's promises, he doubled it up and gave an oath. Guess what? You don't just get a hope, a better hope. You don't just get a promise. You get a better promise. You don't just get an oath from Abraham. You too get an oath. This was sealed with an oath as well. This is where he quotes Psalm 110 and says, The Lord has sworn. He, he has an oath. He will not change his mind. This Messiah in Psalm 110, who is the king, the Lord of lords, that sits at the right hand, as all his enemies are at his footstool. Psalm 110. That person, that Messiah king in the line of Judah, he's also going to be a priest. I swear it, God says. So you get a promise of a Messiah king in the line of Judah, but also a priest, king, and God swears by it, friends. So you are exactly like Abraham in the fact that you got a promise of hope and an oath put together. Jesus did not become a priest because of his family line. In fact, he became a priest because of God's purposes in promising with an oath. The former priests didn't get an oath. Levi did not get an oath. That's verse 20. Jesus got an oath. Therefore, we are now a part of that hope. 22, better hope, better oath, better promise. 
better covenant. Jesus now guarantees a better covenant. The old covenant is good, but it was not able to do what Jesus did. Incomplete is probably the best word. Incomplete to accomplish the purposes that God accomplished or set forth. Look at 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Levi, he died. His sons, they would die. And it would be concession of priests again and again. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. See, the contrast here between the Levi priests who are mortal men who will die again and again and again, and Jesus, he'll go into the Holy of Holies. He will sit down at the right hand of the Father, and he will never die. I hope you're seeing this. Kind of this argument's building and it's getting to the sweet spot right here. 25. Consequently, if all of what we've said is true, then Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near. Notice again this language. We need to get to God. We need to draw near to Him. We need God and man to be together again. How are we going to be able to do that? Because Jesus saves to the uttermost, completely, fully, perfectly. He saves. And since he lives forever, he makes intercession for them forever. Friends, this is one of the sweetest verses in all of the Bible. Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, can save anyone in any pit, no matter how far you've gone, he saves to the uttermost. Furthermore, he saves and sustains because he prays and intercedes and mediates for you forever. Doesn't go in and out of the temple, stays there, sits down, and remains in the Holy of Holies forever. I think at this point we might need something like, okay, help me get this just normal everyday life. Because I don't know about priests. I've never been a Catholic or a Jew or ever have to offer something to a priest or something. So for any of those who are in the room and you're like, yeah. Sounds like it's a nice promise, sweet verse, gotcha, Phil, but it's not doing anything. Think about it like this. Jesus being our intercessor forever could mean one of two things. One, that he is praying for us continually. So sometimes we think, where's Jesus right now? Like, where's he at and what's he doing? He is in heaven, ascended to heaven, as we saw in Acts chapter 1 and the end of the gospel story. Jesus ascended to heaven. He didn't die. And he's there at the right hand of God, and he is interceding. He's praying. Think of it like when Peter would say, Jesus, I will follow you to death. I'll do anything for you. It's like, Peter, you know, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But you will not fall because I prayed for you. Think about that picture. Now, use that for your life, that they're in heaven forever, continually, day after day after day. Jesus stands before the Father and is praying, I prayed for you. You won't fall. You'll make it to the end. You have an anchor because I'm praying. I'm interceding for you. That's a good, helpful picture. Second helpful picture, this word for intercede is a legal word, and it could very easily mean not just praying or being a priest like a sacrifice, but being an advocate, and this, I think, opens up a whole nother realm of how sweet and awesome this passage is. Jesus is our advocate like a lawyer 
You guys ever seen like TV shows or movies or something where they like have the guy come before the judge and like, who's your representative? Who's your lawyer? Ah, I'm going to represent myself. That doesn't ever really go so well for the people. And you realize that in this courtroom picture that's being given here with this language of advocate, you have a judge and he has to demand justice is done. And you have somebody who's been accused of a crime. And in this picture, friends, that's us. We are guilty of high treason against the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, God Almighty. We stand there sentenced to death eternally, sitting there in the guilty seat in the courtroom. And do you realize at that moment, the only hope you have is to either A, represent yourself, or B, let someone else represent you, like a lawyer. Now, even in everyday language of understanding what lawyers do, you, if you've ever been in court, I don't know if you have, I haven't been in this situation, praise God, maybe you have, but do you realize that you will only be as good in that moment as you are in your lawyer? You're only as good as your lawyer is. Your chances of winning that case and being set free is because your lawyer is good. He represents you well. He represents your case well. He's smart. He's intellectual. He is wise. He knows how to handle the jury or the judge. You need a very good lawyer to represent you. And here's the beautiful picture here. That in the same way that in everyday court that you're only as good as your lawyers, if you have a bad lawyer who's dumb and doesn't know the law and doesn't know how to move and maneuver, you could be free, like you could be like innocent, but because you have a bad lawyer, you have a bad advocate, you get sentenced. We are wrapped up in our advocate. We are in him. This is why Paul Herman read for us Romans chapter 6. If Christ died and then rose again, we died with Christ and we're united with him. We are one with him. We are union with Christ language here. We are represented by our lawyer, Jesus Christ, our priest, our advocate. So friends, is Jesus Christ a good advocate? Is he going to make a good case before the Father? Not a case where he's sitting there begging and pleading, oh God, please, 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 please. Forgive these awful sinners. I love them so much. Would you just forgive them? No, no, no. That's not the case he presents before the Father. He stands before the judge and he says, I demand justice. The court of law says that you cannot punish somebody twice for the same crime. I have already been punished for their crime, so they need to be set free. Do you understand that? Do you understand that when Jesus stands as our advocate before the Father and the heavenly courtroom, he demands justice be done, and that because his sacrifice was once and for all, and it was perfect, and it paid for the penalty, that you and I, therefore, can be set free. This is exactly what he says, verse 26, for it was fitting that we should have such a high priest. What's he like? He's holy, he's innocent, he's unstained, he's separated from sinners, he's exalted above the heavens, and he has no need like the other priests to offer sacrifice daily, first for his sins and then for the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. He offered himself for us on our behalf. 28, for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And in case you're thinking, okay, 
what's this Melchizedek thing about? And how does this have to do with Jesus being in the Holy of Holies? Look at chapter 8, which we'll get to next week, Lord willing. Now, the whole point of what I'm trying to say is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that, set, that the Lord set up, not man. There Jesus is, in the holy of holy, forever. Sitting down at the right hand of God because he died, he rose, and he ascended into heaven. Friends, I asked the question I started with. What do you think you need this morning? Do you think you need comfort from your suffering and your trials? The writer of Hebrews, I think, would urge you to say, Jesus is so much better than just comfort from physical, temporary trials and suffering. You need an advocate. You need a high priest. You need a Melchizedek-like priest. Do you think this morning that you need money and material gain? Riches? Jesus is so much better than riches. So much better than any material gain, success, popularity, power, wealth that you could accumulate on this earth. He's so much better than that. You think you need a victory? Some sort of breakthrough this morning? Consider Jesus. So much better. You could stumble and fall again and again. But do you have an advocate? Do you have Jesus Christ? Even if you don't get the breakthrough today or tomorrow. What if you don't ever get it for the rest of your life? Are you holding fast to Jesus? Because guess what? You could have a breakthrough and stop drinking alcohol and go to hell. Whatever addictions that you have in your life, you could break through and be like, I got rid of them, I'm done. But you don't have Jesus. Jesus is better. Hold on to Jesus. He's so much better. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to give you thanks this morning for this amazing high priest named Jesus. We want to thank you that you have made a way for him to fulfill both the kingly and priestly line. And we can see further of his glory and his beauty and his perfections for us. And so I pray for us this morning, wherever we are at and whatever felt needs we have, that we would see the greatest need in our life this morning is Jesus Christ, ascended into heaven in the Holy of Holies. Thank you that that is done and finished and taken care of. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.